Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. Uh, the big debate this week isn't will England beat South Africa in the Test Series, which is beautifully poised at one all, or will they eventually regain the Ashes in Australia, or will India dominate world cricket forever, as they seem to be doing at the moment? No, the big debate this week is who is the better all-rounder out of Ben Stokes, Ian Botham and Andrew Flintoff. So, what's your view, Simon? <laughs> oh, um, by the way, we'll preview the, the test match afterwards, but this is the most important matter of the week. Well, you put me right on the spot there. Um, three fantastic cricketers. Hard to separate any of them. No, no, we, we, won't, we won't sit on the fence, will we? No, we won't sit on the fence, no. actually. Uh, we, we're going to give you our very carefully considered and researched views on this. Uh, I mean, your, first, your overall hunch, let's say. Botham, Stokes, Flintoff. Right, OK. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd go with that as well, actually. Both oh, not much disagreement off. there. Not, not much disagreement, but but we will disagree on the the finer detail uh, because I mean, first thing I just have to say, I mean, Botham's bowling was outstanding. Even you know, people said he declined massively, and of course he did. But even when I played with him for Dur- at Durham for a couple of years, and even though he was bowling at about fifty-four miles an hour, he actually still had <laughs> something. Even slower than you. It, it was even slower than me. It was a relief having him at the other end, actually, because there was someone who was slower than me. But he had—I mean, he had the keeper stand up, standing up to mm. the stumps a lot of the time. But he had that um, ability to just get the ball to do something, hit the bat a bit harder than it looked as if he would, because he had that incredible strength—you know, upper body strength—and it, 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 the ball arrived with with passion and determination and almost uh, I want to humiliate a batsman sort of uh, uh, emotion to it as well. I don't know if you can bowl the ball with emotion, but you... you but I think you can, yeah. yeah. Maybe you can. And, and So, you know, that was his heavy ball. And I remember the time he got Viv Richards out, you know, that was their last season, and Viv was playing the Glamorgan, and he came in in a Benson Hedges game, early season game, and we put both of them on straight away. And he was terrified of getting out, and so he wasn't. He was scared to play a shot off him. And Beefy absolutely loved it. He revelled in, you know, a, a final go against his his greatest friend, and and foe. And and he bowled this sort of lollopy medium pacer with the keeper stood up. Viv tried to turn it for a careful single, and the caution undid him because he got a leading edge, caught and bowled. And and both of them hit the ground one handed and caught the ball, sort of stretched out, landing in mid pitch. And you know there was this sort of 
Richter scale shaking of the ground as this huge <laughs> figure crashed to the ground and got this catch. But he got the ball and he clenched it to his fist and he punched it. And it was almost like the best wicket ever taken. It's almost like he won the Ashes on his own. Because you played with him, didn't you, at the end of your career. What was that like? What was that experience like? Well, it, it was um, obviously very tiring and quite expensive because he'd drink all the most expensive wine and then, and, and then split the bill. But... It, it and was, no one stood up to him. No one said, hold on, Beefy, you've just bought this wine, cost well, X. You, you, well, you, no, because he'd say, how many you, bloody w- test wickets <laughs> did you take? And, you know, you had to split the bill. So th- there was no kind of argument there. But it was always fun. And, I, I mean, my abiding memory is, is just this will to win. And that's why I would put him ahead of Stokes and Flintoff, because, not saying that either of those didn't have the will to win, but... That Botham's will to win was just uh, overcame everything, and it transmitted itself into the team. So there were games we played where we didn't really deserve to win the match, but he sort of said, "Right, you know, we can win this game, boys." And uh, in fact, first ever game I played with him for Durham against Lancashire. It was Durham's first game as a first-class county. It was a one-day game, and it, it, he effected a run out, a seven-to win for Lancashire. He effected a brilliant run out from mid-wicket, hit the stumps, side on won the game. Mm. So it was things like that. Even though he was totally ruined physically by then, he could still do it. And, uh, you know, that, to me, was why, plus his incredible bowling for that spell for sort of five years, 78 to 82, 83, you know, where he swung the ball late both ways, bowled at probably high 80s miles an hour, wouldn't get the, you couldn't get the ball off him. You know, you think of that test match in, in India... Mm where he scored 100 and, and took 12 wickets in absolutely intense heat. And he was up half the night drinking with Chris Lander of the Daily Mirror as well. So, you know, incredible energy and zest for life, which enabled him to have that impact on the game. You've been canvassing the opinions of your cricketer colleagues as well. So is it worth hearing from them? First of all, yeah, to, sure it is. So this is uh, first Hugh Turberville, who's been watching the game since the 1980s and was a big sort of Botham fan at, in that era and has been writing on the game since the 90s. So he's well versed in all three people's careers. Then two younger journalists, James Coyne and the cricketer digital editor Sam Mooreshead. Hugh Turberville first. Ben Stokes and Ian Botham are the best batsmen. Okay, they're they're both capable of scoring belligerently but they've also got very good techniques and very good in defence both and brilliant sort of 1981 at Headingley we all know what he did there Brisbane 86-7 he could smack it everywhere couldn't he but he also had the defensive technique as he showed at the Oval against Pakistan in 1987 where he scored 50 off 200 odd balls to sort of block as well. He, he had everything. And Stokes is similar, isn't he? He's shown that he can smash it everywhere, but as he showed at Headingley last summer, two, he scored two runs in his first 50 balls against Australia. So I would say they're the two best batsmen. I'd say Flintoff isn't quite in their league. Um, he, he'll be insulted by that, won't he? He's a very good batsman, of course, but um, I don't think he's quite there. Bowling, I think Ian Botham between 19, the age of 19 and 23 was absolutely fantastic. Geoffrey Boycott doesn't talk too often about um, Botham, doesn't he, how fabulous he was, but he does say he was a brilliant bowler, he swung it and at pace. Uh, so I think um, Stokes bowling handy, Flintoff brilliant bowler, two left-handers, I've got to go for Botham there overall, I think he was the ultimate cricketer. Uh, People say Stokes could be as good as Botham, but he is only sort of halfway, five-eighths away through his career. So maybe judge him at the end, maybe say Stokes was as good as Botham, but I think he's not as good as Botham at the moment. I think with the potential to still improve Stokes, I would say, um, 
in the on the basis that he still has time to grow. I think we're probably slightly biased in that we're seeing him now at his peak, so he has the potential to go any of the ways. I suppose. I think if you're talking about technique, batting technique, Stokes has got the best technique of the lot. Uh, he's played more key innings now, I think, than even both of them did. And both of them played some great innings, you know, at Brisbane. Um, 14 test hundreds. 14 test hundreds. With both of them. Yeah. I mean, uh, how many how many Stokes, Stokes got? Eight. Okay, maybe not then. <laughs> but I think, I, think he's, I think he's certainly shown he's got the best technique of, the, of them. Both of them in the first half of his career was obviously an extraordinary all-rounder, probably the best of the three. Um, but his career, we did see how his career did taper off uh, for various reasons. Um, so... We hope that Stokes, in this possibly slightly more professional game than it was then, won't do that. You know, he should keep his body in tip-top shape, and hopefully, if he's still able to bowl, that's the big question. Because, you know, I, I, a few weeks ago I was thinking that maybe Stokes would, you know, his, his bowling was going to get rationed, and he may even give it up, and he might become England captain. But we've seen that he has the potential to really have these amazing impact spells, like he did at Cape Town. Out of the three, unfortunately, I didn't get to see both of them much in his prime, particularly live. I've seen the highlights and, and the great footage of, of his heroics at various points. But um, from a personal perspective, it's been Flintoff versus Stokes. Uh, and for me, Flintoff still edges it currently, uh, simply from uh, the bowling perspective. I think that he added a huge amount more than Stokes does with the ball now. Um, obviously, with a batting perspective, Stokes offers a, a great deal more than, than Flintoff probably ever did. Um, but uh, I still think there's more to come, obviously, from Stokes, whereas Flintoff's career is, is over. So in time, I'm sure that it will, will go the other way. But at the moment, it's Freddie for me. We haven't really heard your you know detailed assessment here Simon some some stats to back up some arguments well what I look at when you talk about all-rounders you look at a batting average that's above a bowling average so if you're a a class all-rounder you want your batting average to be above your bowling average Ian Botham plus 5.14 in test cricket in other words his batting average was 33.54 and his bowling average was 28.40, so plus 5.14. Stokes at the moment is plus 3.24. In other words, his batting average is 36.16. His bowling average is 32.92. Flintoff is minus 2.01, and that means his bowling average is above his batting average for his 79 test matches. So if you just look at those pure stats, you can rate Botham, Stokes, Flintoff, in that order, what that doesn't tell you, of course, is that are the individual performances in certain series, in certain matches. I mean, they were both three fabulous cricketers. That's the other thing. I mean, you look at Australia. You know, they haven't really produced a decent all-rounder for for many, many decades. Sort of crying out for one. England have produced three, and they and also as well, I'd say three in my lifetime of, of watching. There was also Tony Gregg, who was a you know very good all-rounder in the in the nineteen seventies, much more of a batting all-rounder. Than you know, a sort of bowling all rounder as well. You've forgotten David Capel and Mark Eden. <laughs> well, I know, I know. I'm so sorry about that. And and you, yourself, you occasionally got a few runs, <laughs> didn't you? Oh. Anyway, anyway. So yeah, so Tony Gregg as well. Although you know, you could say he was. You know, I know he had Scottish uh, ancestors and he was really South African. But you know, he was also a fine all rounder for England in the 1970s. A fine cricketer. Uh, don't underestimate him. But you know, you think of those sort of three players that we all experience in terms of. Well, you played with Ian Botham, and you know you've watched all of them, and I've watched all of them as well. England, fantastically fortunate to have them, really. I mean, it's it's amazing they've been able to produce three 
fantastic cricketers. Yeah, I mean, on the stats there, you know, good good stats, well researched. Both of them, fourteen Test hundreds. That's the yeah. thing I think is incredible. And in a way. He would have made more hundreds if he hadn't bowled so many overs. Because he bowled so many overs and had such an impact as a bowler, he didn't have the mental energy to bat long periods. But isn't periods. that the challenge? Isn't that the challenge of being a great all-rounder? Yes, though? it is. It, it is know, a that, massive challenge. That's what makes you a great all-rounder, if you're able to bowl all those overs, take all those wickets, and then come out and score I, I all think... those runs as well. Look at, for example, look at someone like Jack Callis. 166 test matches, average 55.37 and still had time to take 292 test wickets as well. I mean, fun, absolutely phenomenal. We talked about both of them being plus 5.14 and Stokes plus 3.24. Callis plus 22.72. And then there's one player, of course, who's even better than that, and that's Gary Sobers, average 57.78 and took his wickets at 34.03, so plus 23.75. So, you know, there is that challenge, isn't there? You, you say about that, you know, you, you bowl all these overs, then you've got to go out and bat. But Callis and Sobers were able to do it as well. Yeah, and I mean, they both kept themselves very fit. Mm. I mean, Callis, I suppose at times, did his weight went up a bit, but he still bowled a fair number of overs. And Sobers was, was incredibly fit throughout his career, despite the fact he sort of drank... I think brand, rum or brandy sort of during the day, and famously went off during a Test match innings and needed brandy before he could come back on again. So remarkable fitness and productivity from both of those players. That's where I think Stokes, in the end, might score not perhaps quite as highly as Callis, but he'll be getting up there because his fitness, we all know, is is very very important to him. He's he's very very dedicated to his fitness, and that'll enable him a to get a higher batting average ultimately. I mean, his batting now, I think his batting is better than Botham's now because it's not as necessarily destructive, although it can be. Mm. But he's got that resolution. He's got the technique. Botham's technique was good. But he could be fallible to a, a good ball initially. He was sometimes didn't move his feet very much. And, you know, he liked to try and go at the ball just short of a length outside off stump and try and attack it. So, you know, he would get out occasionally. And it's understandable because his role was to be aggressive. But Stokes can bat at number four. I don't think Beefy would ever have been able to bat really at number four. He could bat at five. He could he, bat at he five did or bat six. At five. Stokes can bat at four. He can mm. bat at three. Mm. Because he's got that technical and yeah. mental yeah. dedication to the crease to to be able to play long innings. So I think in the end, his batting average of what is it thirty six now yeah. is disappointing for a guy of that talent, and that's going to go up. I mm. think it will get to to forty or maybe more. And he's got eight Test hundreds now. I think he'll get to more than Botham's fourteen. So that uh, differential between batting yeah. and bowling averages is going to get perhaps to sort of seven or eight. In the end, whereas Botham's is five, so you know it's gonna, it might just you know to the end of his career. And the, and the other thing is he'll he'll probably be able to sustain his career, whereas Beefy sort of went into decline. Yeah, I mean we're not quite comparing like for like. We're talking about all rounders, aren't we? And three quality all rounders. But you know Ian Botham was an opening bowler. You know he took he took the new ball and he was a num- really he was a number six batsman. For England, I mean, Stokes has batted at number number six for England. But or lower, been, yeah. In, I, I think his first Test hundred in Perth is number seven. Yeah, so, and, but they you know, they pushed him up the order. Now he's he's number five, and he doesn't open the ball. He's he's very much the fourth bowler as well. And you could you could see a case where 
you know, his his bowling role diminishes as his batting role takes over. It just depends who is there to do the other jobs. But I mean, England, England in recent Test matches have played five seamers, and Stokes has been very much the fifth seamer. Now, he's certainly got it within him to be that that fourth bowler. It is just a question of of fitness of a different sort. We're not talking about. I mean, Ian Botham's fitness because he lived life to the full off the field. It's, it probably did decline in the second half of his career quite quite markedly. Whereas Stokes is a different issue, isn't it? It's it's more it's more the wear and tear on his knees. So there's there's a different issue there. Of course Andrew Flintoff had those issues as well with his with his fitness, uh, which undermined his uh, well longevity really as a, an England cricketer. I mean there was a time when uh, Flintoff, I think Rivaled would have rivaled both them as a threat with the ball, wouldn't you? I mean, he, there were there were times when he was he was fast and nasty. Yeah, I, I mean, I think overall that, that Flintoff had great moments yeah. or great series, whereas Botham was a truly great cricketer, yeah. and I think Stokes will be if he if he isn't already. And the other thing we haven't mentioned, of course, about all round cricket is fielding, mm. and all of them excellent in the slip. Corden, yeah. both and taking some you know some great catches uh, that we've many of which we've seen Flintoff too very solid uh, at slip no one had the agility of Stokes who could run very fast at a ball on the boundary and hurl it in like he does and take those ridiculous catches mm. like the one at the oval against South Africa so I'd give Stokes an extra mark for his versatility yeah. in the field yeah because both was a brilliant slip fielder but and but generally fielded in the slips, didn't he? And yeah. Stokes... I mean, he was a good outfielder yeah. as well, but he yeah. wasn't as mobile yeah. or as fast as as Stokes is. Because yeah. one thing we're overlooking here, we're talking about Test match all round. Is what we haven't looked is their their white ball uh, careers as well. Who was more effective as a a white ball cricketer? Um, Ian Botham played 116 One Day Internationals. He only had a top score of, of 79. Flintoff played 141. One day internationals made three hundreds and eighteen fifties. Stokes has played ninety-five one day internationals, three hundreds, twenty fifties, but only seventy wickets. His his one day form mm. I, I would say sort of puts him ahead of the other two. I mean in, in both matches he was you'd think he was the, well, the archetypal one day cricketer, wouldn't you? Just he was he would be your first name on the team sheet. But actually his his batting record was, was quite disappointing. But he, he he did take wickets and he he did also his economy rate is under four. But, but in I, a different era, because batsmen didn't score as quickly in the era in which he played, or didn't try to score as quickly in the era in which he played. Yeah, true. I would say if I had to choose one of those players for a one day international, I might choose Flintoff. Mm. Partly because his bowling was so reliable, you could get the ten overs out of him, and he would bowl very good pace, consistent back of a length, horrible yeah. uh, awkward lift, and he could bowl a great Yorker as well. So, I, and plus, you know, he'd come into bat at number seven and smash a quick fifty. Mm. So, I think actually, from a one-day point of view, I might almost give it to Flintoff with Stokes as as a second. But and both of them obviously playing in a different era, he would have uh, probably adjusted to the, to the modern era and been more attacking with the bat and maybe had some more tricks with the ball. But Flintoff for me, actually as a one-day cricketer, was was supreme. Yeah, 169 wickets. I mean, the interesting thing about this debate and and, and Ian Botham is is the sort of unknown of modern-day fitness. Whether he would have sort of complied with the modern-day regimes and 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 sort of gone along with it because well, well I think he would have had to. Have. Yeah. Because he would have had no choice. Really. And, and if he had have done, then I think you know he would have been 
so much more effective yeah. for so much longer. I think that that was the thing. I mean, you, you see him towards the end of his career. You mentioned it when you were playing in the Durham. He, you know, even for England, he was sort of trundling in towards the end. He, he was a sort of pale imitation of, of himself. You know, but, you know when he was bowling in the late seventies. I mean, he was quick and he swung it, and he was he was a devastating bowler. Totally. I mean, I I tried to copy him and obviously failed. But I I love the way I love really? the way he 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 swung. The ball both ways, yeah. and I copied that, and I also copied his slower ball, which was an off break, and I had great delight. One of the highlights of my career, actually, is once bowling at him at Lords for Middlesex, and in a one-day game, and I bowled him my slower ball, and he thought it was my quicker one. Went for a big drive, lobbed it straight up in the air, caught, and he walked off, stomped off back to the pavilion at Lords, and he walked past John Embry on the way off, and he said. There, that's how to bowl an off break. <laughs> how many times did you get him out? Oh, you, I don't you, remember. But, uh, oh, come uh, on, you must remember. No, I honestly don't. I, I mean, three or four times. Right, okay. uh, but but that was my favourite because mm. it was a genuine piece of deception. And it's but it, but it was copied from the mm. ball I saw him bowl in the nineteen seventies. You say about his fitness, and of course, that was legendary. His, his sort of after hours activities, and uh, actually, in this next issue of the Cricketer Magazine, we've got a feature with Peter Hater, the former. Mail on Sunday cricket correspondent uh, known as Reggie in the business because his father was Reg Hater who founded the Hater Sports Agency and he tells the story of ghosting Botham's autobiography and basically went on various trips to the West Indies and a fishing trip somewhere or other and various sort of weeks spent in his company, all of it drinking mm. and a very little memory of anything that he'd achieved, actually. He sort of almost erased it and didn't think it was important, always wanted to look ahead rather than back. So his autobiography wasn't a greatest literary work, but he, he wasn't someone who liked to reflect on the past anyway. Yeah. I mean, all three of them have had their off-field scrapes as well. Does it come with the territory? I suppose so. It's just that warrior-like attitude on the field is not easy to switch off when you're off the field. And it obviously started with, with Beefy and Ian Chappell in the 1970s when he was in Melbourne on a scholarship and encountered Chappell being rude about England and the Poms and they, they came to blows and they've never they've hated each other mm. ever since. And that was the sort of first of a few secrets of incidents in Botham's life. And as you say, the others have dabbled with various controversies as well. I think it's that you, you can't expect someone to be a, a lion on the field and a pussycat off it. OK, well, let, let, so let's round up our, our sort of assessment of them as, as cricketers. I, I think Botham, Stokes, Flintoff in that order. In terms of bowling, I would say... Botham, Flintoff, Stokes, and in terms of batting, I would say Botham and Stokes are roughly the same. Stokes better technique and has got the potential to go past Botham in the rest of his career, but he's he's got to get another six hundreds to go uh, level with him. Probably he's got plenty of time to do that as well. You you back him to do that. In fact, he'd be quite disappointed if he doesn't. So it may well be that Stokes would end up as the the better batsman of the two, and then Flintoff in third place. So Flintoff's second in the bowling and third in the batting. Both of them definitely right up there in the bowling number one, and sort of vying with Stokes, with Stokes possibly you know as time goes on and possibly already actually nudging ahead as a batsman. And if you had to choose one, well, I would choose Botham because of his 
brilliance with the ball. That natural skill of being able to take wickets on a flat pitch in unsuitable surroundings, making the ball swing, making the ball do something mm. to get good players out. That, I think, is invaluable. Yeah. Ian Botham, the, the first half of his career, definitely the, be- the best of the three, I would say, without, without a doubt. No, no doubt about it. Right, let's talk about the world of cricket generally now for a few minutes. And I'd just like to refer to Andrew Sampson's column in the next issue of The Cricketer, talking about Stokes and his achievements in that Cape Town Test match. He says if he got to 100 in that second innings, when he made 72 or 40-odd balls, he would have been only the second person to make two hundreds before lunch in a Test match, or two amounts of 100 before lunch, because, of course, he did it in Cape Town the time before when he made 258. The other person to have done that is a left-hander also. Oh, I've just got all the left-handers from history to think over. Brian Charles Lara was the other one who's who's done that. And also, he's the first English fielder to take five catches Mm. in innings as well. I mean, that's probably well-known now, but that's a hell of an achievement. It was was funny at the post-match... Presentation where Stokes was trying to push Dominic Sibley forward to take the other. He, no, he's the man of the match. We mentioned this last week, but I mean, an all round performance of Stokes, it was, it was hard to resist, really. Wickets, crucial wickets, uh, runs, catches. I know Sibley's innings did set up England's victory. Actually, Sibley's the only century maker so far in the series. You, you, you've got quite long odds on that after uh, two test matches at the start of the series. And uh, I can see him repeating it at Port Elizabeth as well because. It's a flat pitch, that. Yeah. It might suit him pretty well. Uh, so if he can get through that early period with the new ball, he could easily score another 100. What I think England will need in, in Port Elizabeth more than they needed in Cape Town is pace. Yeah. For the simple reason, the pitch is really slow there. I've still got this image in my head of Dale staying at uh, Port Elizabeth, clean bowling Michael Vaughan with the most fantastic late outswinger, which was ripped out his off stump. And... Stain was absolutely irresistible at Port Elizabeth. You need someone with that extra zest. So this bowl out or potential playoff between Archer, Wood and, and Wokes, I hope one of Archer and Wood is fit because I think England are going to need that that extra bit of pace and they can't rely on Stokes providing it. Well, the other thing as well, they might like them both fit for the Wanderers because if, you, if you're a fast bowler, any self-respecting fast bowler is going to bowl, want to bowl at the Wanderers. That is a, a nice, fast bouncy pitch, sort of like Perth of old. Um, sort of Stuart Broad actually bowled South Africa out there uh, last time. He, he won the game on, on the Saturday and it, the game ended uh, very quickly. I mean, PE, it's, it's such a contrast actually. The, in, you know, if, if past history is anything to go by in those two services, you're right, slow and low at Port Elizabeth and fast and bouncy at, at the Wanderers. Reverse swing, does that come into it? At, yeah. At um, PE, yeah. PE, yeah. so possibly Mark Wood. But then Wood, I mean, he hasn't played for such a long time. He hasn't played since the World Cup final. Um, he, he's been out there. I mean, they picked him to go on this tour. It's, it's, and they're sort of hoping that they were going to get him fit towards the back end of the of the series. He has been bowling you know, quickly in the nets. Uh, but do you throw him in? Can you throw him into a test match? Or do you just gamble on him in that in that last Test match and goes all out pace in that in that last game. What do you say? Actually, no, Mark. We actually probably need to test you in a in a proper match before you, we we bring you back. Well, I don't think that Wood's pace in the Wanderers is necessarily as important because the ball carries nicely anyway, and 
you, you don't need to be rapid, you just need to bowl well yeah. at the Wanderers, whereas at Peer you need something yeah. to take wickets. And South Africa have got that now with Nokia to back up Rabada and Philander. So England need to find that extra ingredient. I think this obviously Jimmy Anderson now out has gone back, so it's going to be Broad and Stokes and one of Archer and Wood, I reckon. You think so, wouldn't you? I mean, they'll want Archer, surely, won't they? I mean, he's he's been bowling. He's missed a, if he's fit anyway. I mean, if the arm's ready, you'd think that they want Archer. I mean, they they root clearly likes him. Mm. I mean, he's it's, used him a lot. It's interesting the whole elbow thing. I mean, this happened to me actually. Um, it was a football injury as well. Typically, it was pre-season, and I'd already taken probably I don't know 140 championship wickets at a low average and I was bowling high 80s uh, 85 86 sort of speed and pre-season we played five aside football in a gym and one of the second 11 players piled into me with a sort of ridiculous tackle I went over the top landed on my right hand and the rest of my body went over the top Mm. And my hand sort of stayed where it was. So I used to have uh, hyper-extendable elbows, which gave me the ability to bowl that bit more whippily and, and get that ball down a little bit quicker. And the, the elbow went in the wrong way, too far, and all the ligaments got really damaged. And I was out for two months. And I was never quite able to straighten my elbow ever again. So um, it, it actually, I think, took probably two or three miles an hour away in terms of pace. And... Archer has that hyperextension as well, which is part of the reason why he's able to bowl as quick as he is with so little effort. It's that extra snap mm. of the elbow, that little bit of whip of extension that just enables you to bowl that ball that bit quicker and, and it comes onto the bat faster than the batsman expects. Well, they'll be desperate for Archer to be... So I hope he's all right yeah, for yeah, that reason. Yeah, they'll be desperate for him to be back to full fitness. I mean, he's their, he's their jewel, isn't he? He's their treasure. that They, they want to sort of nurture over the... The next few years, because without him, England's bowling in the future to me looks a bit thin. With him, they you know they've got that real weapon, that that pace, that quality that can help them sort of drag them up. Really, I think. I mean, it's, it's fairly clear um, whether he's ready for P. <laughs> you think for Archer actually? He's, you know, he's bowled the Bay Oval, which has been slow and low. He's bowled at, Mount, at um, Hamilton, which was slow and low. Okay, there was some. He did have Centurion. He did have Centurion, but then okay, there's PE. That's slow and low as well. He'd be thinking, oh, "Welcome to the world of Test yeah, cricket." Welcome to Test match. He'd be, he'd be desperate, desperate to play at the Wanderers, only he? he, he they'll be, they'll be, they'll be licking his lips. They all will be. I'm all self-respecting bowlers want to want to bowl at the Wanderers, but I think you, you make a good point. Actually, it is not just about raw pace at the Wanderers. You need accuracy as well because you could you could go around the park there as well because I think. Is it, I mean, batsmen are probably looking to score as well because. Well, yeah, and, and actually, it's a far scoring ground. And yeah. I know I, we've had a couple of emails from people saying we overplay the effect of the altitude, but the ball definitely goes further off the bat yeah. as well as off the pitch. I mean, sit, more sixes are hit at the Wanderers than at other grounds, so therefore it's, it comes to the batsman's aid a bit as well, that a- thin air. Absolutely. I mean, I saw one day international at the Wanderers where Owen Morgan, who, you, I mean, he's, you know, he's a. He's a reasonably big hitter but he's not the biggest is he you, you wouldn't necessarily say he was the biggest hitter in, in world cricket but if he, if he times it, it goes obviously I saw him hit what, I think the one of the biggest sixes I've ever seen at the Wanderers uh, hit it out of the ground over deep square leg out of the ground out towards the the scoreboard it was a dark night as well and the ball you see the ball going and it just just went into the night sky absolutely massive and if you hit. play golf at the Wanderers Golf Club 
You know, you need, you need one less club for a lot of those holes yeah. as well, if you're any good, which I'm not. But, I mean, I remember sort of hitting a nine iron and it went a lot further. I probably topped it, but it went a lot further than I expected. So it has the same effect. And actually, it has the same effect for bowlers as well. The ball just seems to carry through that bit more. So anybody who sends a, an email in saying we make too much of the altitude, shut up, we don't. <laughs> no, it does, it does fly there. Uh, what else in the, in the world of cricket? Well, we've been uh, watching and, and commenting on a, a lot of big bash cricket. Um, you saw Marcus Stoinis produce a, a sensational innings. I thought one of the interesting stats you, you came up with after that innings was that Stoinis faced more balls in a T20 innings than anyone else in history. Is that yeah, right? That is. Well, I think it was actually, it might have been equal number. Equal but it's number. 79 balls, which is the most that a batsman's ever faced in a T20 match. And uh, I think that says two things in a way. It says, obviously, well played for staying in for the whole innings. But also, does it say he eats up a lot of balls that he could have given to somebody else? Because his strike rate wasn't 200. You know, he got 147 off 79 balls. So what's that strike rate? It's about 170 or something like that. Obviously very good, but it contained 100 in boundaries. Mm. So his hitting was superb, but he's actually well known as a batsman who is powerful, but not particularly good at rotating the strike. Sometimes takes a single off the last ball, as our friend Jeffrey always, always loved to do, but generally not very good at rotating the strike. And that is, is, is count, can be counterproductive. In a team, so there was a debate going on in Australia about wow, fantastic innings, record big bash individual score, 147, comfortably more than anyone else has ever made in a big bash on the biggest ground in Australia as well. The MCG, uh, yeah, MCG, and hitting 100 in boundaries. But is he better than Warner or Finch opening the batting? And I'd say the answer is no, because the, both of those, as well as the big hitting, can play a, a smaller, shorter game too. Yeah. And they're fast between the wickets. Yeah, he batted for 13.1 overs of the 20 overs. I mean, it's unusual that someone bats from start to finish anyway. But it's, yeah, it's, uh, when you said 79 balls, I thought surely someone must have played more than that. But actually, if you think about it, it's a lot of the innings, isn't it? It's, it's yeah, 79 of the 120 well, balls. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a lot. Uh, it's two-thirds. Yeah. It's, 80 balls would be two-thirds yeah. of the innings. What have I seen in the big bash? I saw a remarkable catch from Tom Banton. Well, it was a straightforward catch from Tom Banton, but he did have the good sense to get close to Matt Renshaw, who was on the boundary. Uh, ball was drilled out to Renshaw on the rope. He knocked it up. Well, he went to catch it, and the ball slipped out of his grasp, went over the rope. He stepped over the rope and then leapt in the air as he made contact with the ball. And a bit like a volleyball player, sort of batting it back over the net, knocked it to Banton, who'd come to meet him, and they they checked it. The third umpire said not out to start with. They had another look at it. His feet were just off the ground. The MCC, with the guard in the law, said, yeah, it was absolutely fine as well. And and then the wicket was... was it was Matthew Wade. It was, was on his way. Uh, Court Banton... Poor old Renshaw gets no credit <laughs> all at all. It's just, you know, in the scorebook yeah. it says Court Banton. But, again, amazing uh, athleticism and quick thinking, really, of... Uh, you know, boundary fielders. Fantastic to see. It should be like rewarded. That, sounds like that game. Have you ever played that game in the swimming pool with your kids? I have with mine, where they insist on taking a, a ball, a tennis ball, to any swimming session. And we play this game where you have to keep the ball in the air, but when you touch it, you've got to be off the ground. Right. Yeah. So you have to keep your feet off the ground, sort of treading water, whenever you either touch, catch the ball or pass it off. So there's a lot of sort of pushing the ball to each other while treading water 
Un- under underneath, and I'm I'm always the one who drops it or misses it. That sounds like actually fantastic training for boundary fielding in in white ball cricket. Exactly. Isn't it? Yeah. The so, game the, actually the game I like to play. If we just bring self indulgence room, is get a tennis racket, get a tennis ball, go to the park and play tennis. No, no, no. Oh. Play catch, but hit the oh, ball high as high as you possibly can. Yeah, that's good fun. Yeah, and see what see how many they come up with, and while shouting, my money's on the ball, while they're underneath it, just to put extra pressure. It's on them. good. Uh, it's good doing that when it's a bit windy, <laughs> or if it's bright sunny day, clear blue sky, and a yellow ball, because. You know the the kind of the the perspective makes it very difficult to catch. Tom Banton he's finished his spell in in Big Bash three half centuries. I saw the one he made fifty six off sixteen balls. Well, he got the fifty off sixteen mm. balls. Pff, something something special. I like him more than Liam Livingston, who is just basically a wild slogger. Whereas Banton, I mean, you know, he still plays very very mm. adventurous, aggressive shots, but. I think he has a bit more sense somehow. And I, I, I yeah, like him. He, big levers, long levers, hits the ball miles yeah. and very consistently. Yeah. And and as time goes on as well, he'll probably just become a little bit more judicious. Sometimes he plays, a, it feels to me anyway, as a, an oldster watching T20, sometimes he, he goes for it when he doesn't need to. He can just, you know, bide his time a little bit. I mean, they say, oh, they all you know, want to go for it right from the start these days. He played one incredible shot. In the in the big bash in his last game, where he sort of scoop over the keeper's head, it still catches my breath. That it just astonishing shot. It went for six, way way over the sight screen. Just incredible um, skill to to set yourself and and play that shot, sort of flip over the keeper's head off a quick bowler. Fantastic. So yeah, Banton is. I mean, he's he's one of those players. He's twenty one. You think, oh, I'm going to look forward to watching him play for the next. 10 years or so. Let's hope he doesn't you know, fizzle out and he, he keeps it going because he's a tremendously exciting player to watch if you, you, know, if you, if you really enjoy short-form cricket. I've been enjoying Glenn Maxwell as well, actually. I, 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 there's something about him that he's, he's good, as, as good as A.B. de Villiers, actually. Uh, not necessarily in Test cricket, but in T20, he's absolutely phenomenal. Fantastic to watch and actually equally interesting when he's on the mic mm. as well, chatting away. Uh, to the commentators in between balls, particularly in the field, explaining decisions, having a bit of banter, but really insightful as well and clever in his, his little tactics and things. Real, real thinker on the game. Can't stop watching cricket, amazingly. Yeah. He's a bit like us. Yeah. You know, he's watching cricket all the time. It, it's fascinating to listen to players on, on the microphone. I mean, it obviously works better with some than others. I, I mean, they, they use um, Aaron Finch a lot. He, he's normally mic'd up. When you see him... Sort of directing the troops and getting a bit grumpy sometimes. At the same time, as, you know, all this is going out to all the all the viewers. You, you do get, I think, a real insight. I was I'm a bit sceptical about player mics because I think it sort of takes away from the the value of the game. Because if a player is distracted the the whole time, you can't really concentrate on the game. And if you can't concentrate on the game, you think, well, why are they playing? Is it just a bit of a circus? But actually, if you if you hear someone do it really well. And I think Finch does it it really well. It, it does give you a real insight, and he, you know he talks you through the field changes. And actually, you know you, you you get a real feel for being out there. And what it's also like to be a captain as well, because of that feeling of you know sometimes he does you know no come on in, come, what are you doing out there? Come on, come on. You know you get that real sense of being right in the, the half the action. There are other times when you know they go out to players who've just run a three, and they you know they can barely catch their breath, and it doesn't work as well. But if you get it right, I mean it, you know it's an interesting. Thing for the hundred, how are they going to do well, that? They, they have to. They have yeah. to do that more because it's it's good insight into the game, and it just gets you closer to the action 
as well. Uh, Only I, if it's done well, there. I think you've got to have the yes. right people. Well, you I think the players to... need to understand yeah. what they need to tell. I mean, they almost need to spend some time with some media people, mm. saying, "What do we want to know from you?" And, yeah. and making sure they get the right information over. Yeah, and of course, if you have the mics up the whole time, uh, you get a Joss Butler incident, as you as you had in the the last yeah. Test match, which he's apologised for. He's going to apologise to Vernon Philander. Ah, that's the the heat of the battle. That sort of thing has gone on the whole time in cricket, but. Yeah, I, I think what will happen is players, they, because they will grow up in this environment, they will get so used to it, it will become second nature, which will seem really strange. Because you, yeah. I mean, you can't imagine it happening in lots of other sports. Imagine, imagine golf, you know, just interviewing Tiger Woods. He's a, Tiger Woods is back to play his shot to, the, you know, his third shot to the 18th. Yeah. Exactly what, you can't imagine that, can you? Football, you know, interviewing a goalkeeper just as he's about to face up to a penalty or a penalty... Take her I mean, Ma- Maxwell was doing this uh, the last game. He was saying he was on the mic as he was bowling, mm. and he said things like, "Well, I'm going to bowl across seamer now. Mm. I bowl across seamer, try and hit him on the pads, things yeah. like that." Yeah. I mean, that was re- really yeah. good. I think for some on the bats, we don't hear that. Well, obviously not, but <laughs> well, you might do, and then you bowl something different. Well, that's true. You know, you can easily con the batsman, yeah. but I think uh, that obviously Test cricket, you don't want that to to distinguish it. But in in T20 or the hundred. You, I think you want lots of that because it's engaging and interesting and it, it, it adds to the entertainment value. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you say that. In Australia, over this winter, they're using the player cam to come and interview the players at drinks breaks. I mean, Marnus Labuschagne in the last test match between Australia and New Zealand, goodness me, he batted for a long time again. He must have been interviewed about five times during during his innings, you know, end of day's play, walking off at tea or but you see, now, I mean, people grow up with now, <coughs> you know, my daughter uh, spends most of her day talking to her phone, mm. either speaking to friends or recording videos to send to people or something. People are much more comfortable now, aren't they, talking to a, a form of media, mm. explaining what their thoughts are. It's almost second nature. Yeah, well, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have to be the way, thing, the way things are going. See, I mean, cricket, you know, we, we talk about cricket, some people say it's you know, an old-fashioned sort of game. Cricket is led in lots of lots and lots of innovations. I mean, football's talking about, you know, loads of controversy over VAR. You know, replays in cricket, TV replays in cricket to decide the outcomes have been going on for for years now, decades actually. So you know, cricket not so old fashioned as as people think. Okay, Oswald, well, let's let's finish well, off. Just uh, one thing I will say as a as a final thing. Um, thank you for all your emails about the four day, five day yeah. test debate. Yeah. Uh, one sort of final bit of statistics from Andrew Sampson on that. Uh, one is that in 2019. 35 of the 39 test matches played in the world finished in a result. Mm. So only four draws, which is the lowest percentage, 10%. Sadly, I saw one of those. In fact, I saw two of them. (laughs) So that's the lowest percentage of draws since 1932 in a year. And the other thing is, uh, in in this debate, everyone said, well, how do we know how four-day tests are going to be played? Well... We know what four-day cricket is because it's played all around the world in first-class cricket. And he's done some stats on ten years of first-class cricket around the world with something like 4,500 matches and 37% end in a draw. So that suggests that, that tests, if they were to be four days, yeah. and I'm not recommending they should be, by the way, except in certain situations, but if they were four days you get about a third of them would end in a draw. Yeah. Well, I think the debate's going to continue, isn't it? And, we, and it might well be that uh, the ICC bring in four-day test matches, whether it's going to be in three years' time or three, four years' time or in 10 or 20 years' time. It might well be the, 
the future of the game. I, like you, I still prefer five-day test cricket because I think the best team will definitely come out on top over five days, whereas over four days, perhaps an inferior team uh, could escape. But we'll see what happens on that one. Um, just uh, immediately, um, England and South Africa? Um, two all. You think two all, do you? Yeah. So who's going to win this one then? Probably South Africa. OK. And then England to win at the Wanderers? Yeah. Might be the other way around for me. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, fascinating series. As I said at the start of the series, it's always interesting when England go to South Africa. The cricket is always uh, full of fascination. Uh, not easy to predict, actually. But we'll see what happens in the next uh, few days and we'll uh, review the test match once it's finished. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. <laughs> Podcast Network.